morning, everyone. My name is Dee, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, in the world out there, which I guess you don't belong to today, they're having Easter. And uh, I think they're making a big mistake because I believe that this is where Easter is today. Uh, this is where I feel resurrection. <laughs> and the minute I walked in this door this morning, this is where I felt new life. And uh, I'm grateful to God that I get the chance to be here with all of you this morning. Uh, my story discloses in a real general way, and uh, I would like to tell those of you who need a nap just to take one for the first seven minutes. And, um, some of you may have had a rough night, you know what it's like this uh, roundup, and then when I start talking about my recovery, I would like you to wake up, because uh, I, just, uh, I just got back from Rome and I was telling the Pope exactly what he should be doing. So uh, I figured I could come here and tell you exactly what I required. <laughs> My life was wonderful until I was two years of age. And uh, <laughs> those of you who are newcomers, and I noticed a number of you stood up, uh, you wonder what this has to do with drinking or using. And what I've discovered today is that uh, my life, uh, since I was two, was rather miserable until I found Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, it just was wonderful for those two little years. And, and then, as you can tell by now, I come from Ireland. And um, my father and mother didn't uh, consult me when they were having a new baby. And I know you do this in the United States and America, but uh, in Ireland we don't do that. And um, at two years of age, they had this new child. And it seemed to me that they spent a lot of time adoring her at her crib. And she did not have freckles, and she did not have red hair, and she seemed to be the epitome of beauty, and she did not look like Holly Hobby. <laughs> <laughs> and from that moment in time, I, I just felt separate. I felt different, I felt apart from, and I felt isolated. And, and I know that if you have declared yourself to be chemically dependent or alcoholic, that you are probably at some time feeling like you're isolated, abandoned, lonely, and afraid. And so my early memories of me uh, were loneliness and fear and separateness. And uh, my father and mother went on doing this thing every year, you know. And um, <laughs> they had lots of new babies, and uh, Irish Catholic, by the way. And um, when they had finished with this, it was like uh, I was the oldest of five. And it seemed that each time it was like I was farther and farther apart from where I knew I belonged. And I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous like a hundred years later to find out that I really wanted to belong to the center. The self-centeredness and selfishness was my problem. Now, can you imagine them insulting me like that in Alcoholics Anonymous? I think it's rather poor taste <laughs> myself, but that's what they tell you. And um, so when I got into my early childhood years, my, my father took off for work one day, and uh, he never returned. And uh, he, he uh, really just was real close to me, and I love my father. And uh, I was told that he had had a very serious accident, and that he had been killed. And my dad was killed, and, and he just died on me, and I was upset with him, and I was upset with a God as I understood him then. And I was upset with my mom because she seemed like she she really wanted me to help her to raise those other four. And my mom was a teacher, and she brought me to her side one day and said, Dee, I want you to help me to raise these children. And uh, I can remember that day rather distinctly. And I, I remember putting away my dolls and my toys, and I remember thinking that I had grown up yet. 
Now, I, I just hate the idea that I have to tell you that I drove from North Orange County this morning to tell you that I have not done so yet. Um, I'm in process, and uh, by the grace of alcohol analysis, I have a good chance of probably be, being able to do a little bit of growing up. But uh, I really thought that at age eight, that was it. You know, I had grown up, and uh, I assumed a tremendous burden of responsibility. I became responsible for those other four little children. I became responsible for my mom's job and for my for her financial situation and for everything. And I seemed that I just carried the weight of the world on my shoulders. And there are times today that I can still fall into that pattern of carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. What a wonderful way I know today to live that I don't have to do that anymore. And uh, then I go on up and I got older and I got into my teenage years and I started to think about what I would like to do when, when I really would be finished growing up. And so I made a big decision one day that I wanted to be something really different and really spectacular and really upstanding and really extraordinary. And so I made a decision to become a saint. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's uh, also rather poor taste that has been read in the big book this morning that we are not saints. I, I always take uh, offense of that sentence, that uh, we're growing along spiritual lines. And uh, I just thought that uh, if I could become a saint instantly, you know, really instantly, that that really would be wonderful. And uh, you could read about me and look at me on television, and uh, I could fix all your problems for you. And uh, I really set up about becoming a saint. And the only way I knew how to do that then was to become a nun. And so in the dark ages of 1950, I became a nun. And... Uh, I'm still doing the lifestyle, even though my friend Doug always reprimands me for not wearing my religious garb. Um, I just figured that if I did, you would all run out on uh, Junction 8, and uh, I wouldn't be able to get you to pay any attention to me. And uh, I can't help saying this, but if I wore my religious garb here this morning, I could very possibly look into the audience and see four other people wearing the same religious garb. And uh, that would really be terrible for me. So when I come to a situation like this, I make a decision to not wear my nanny clothes. Uh, now, I would assume that some of you do and do not know what uh, my lifestyle is, and I'm not here to really tell you about that, but I just want to say this little bit. That if you have a resentment against the Catholic Church, and I just uh, suspect maybe one half of you does, uh, <laughs> I just want to say at this moment that I did not do it to you. And when I tell you that, I just take myself off the hook, and uh, I don't carry the guilt and, and uh, burden of the Catholic Church. As I told you a moment ago, I went over to Rome to try to straighten out Pope John Paul II. He paid quite a bit of attention to me, but I don't think he's any sense of changing. And uh, what I learned was that my attitude to John Paul II can change slightly, and when I learned that about anything, it can change slightly. But uh, anyway, I got into by little, some of the uncomfortable feelings with which I grew up, those abandoned, lonely, often isolated feelings, began to surface occasionally. And uh, I had a little voice in my head, and every once in a while this little voice it goes off in my head today, uh, and I just know, looking at you, you're so uh, serene looking, I just know that you don't have this voice, but I'm going to tell you about mine. Uh, the voice says occasionally, if only they would shape up, I'd be better. <laughs> and um, 
what I tried to do, folks, was I tried to shift them up. Uh, I tried to shift the environment, and I thought if only I could get them to change their minds, whoever they were, and change their ways of being, that I would definitely see a real change. If only he would be a little more sensitive to me, and if he would only realize the gift he has in his hands, and if he would only recognize my talents and my intelligence, I certainly would feel better. So I started out to, to see if I could change this man, and I couldn't change him, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. And uh, he seemed to have control of the money, and I didn't like this, and oh, the discomfort of this started in again. And one day a marvelous thing happened to me. And if you're here for the same reason as I am, probably the same thing happened to you in a general sense. And that is that uh, a lady came to my office door one day, and she said, would you like to pack all the rest of the sisters into the fish wagon and come over and swim at our pool? And I said, yes, that sounds like a good idea. And when we stand in a wind, and we were all hot, and the kids were all crazy, and it just seemed like a really good idea. And so we went over there, and when we were all finished with the swimming, she arrived uh, at the side of the pool with a large tray and a pitcher and uh, some glasses. And on the top of the glasses, there was salt. <laughs> oh, I can see that I'm among friends. Who would have my type of man to be around when I was drinking? You know, large drops and all uh, oh, the feeling I had. Uh, the feeling was that I just knew that I had died and that I went straight to heaven at that moment. And everything that was uh, just alien to my insides, everything that was uncomfortable, everything that didn't fit and, and didn't feel good, all seemed to go away. My little sister whom I grew up resenting, uh, she just seemed not too bad. And my mom, you know, that I really grew up disliking, and in Ireland you're supposed to love your mother, you know. I don't know what to do here, but we're supposed to do that in Ireland. <laughs> and um, I had this awful guilt about not loving my mom. And um, so it all seemed like it was going to be better. And for sure, it seemed the pastor was different. Oh, he looked different as I sat at that pool. And I knew I'd found the answer. I knew that if I could get this little beverage on a regular basis, because I worked real hard. Now, I know you didn't work hard, but I worked hard. And uh, I did a lot of things. And I was saving the Catholic Church, and I was juggling, and I was getting it all together. And I was going to shape it all up, and I was going to make a change on this world, on this earth. And in Southern California, I was going to make my mark. And uh, I did make my mark. But, uh, <laughs> Not the way I had expected to do so. Uh, anyway, I really felt that if I could just get this little stuff occasionally, that it, we would be, it would be different. I would uh, feel better. Uh, I would take the edge off living. Life was hard for me. And so I said to the lady before we left, could uh, we have the recipe for that? And um, she gave it to me, and I took it home. And uh, I was at that time, I was the principal of the school. I was the mother superior at the convent. I had all the keys and any money we had, I had, you know, jurisdiction over that. So it seemed like, um, well, this is a real good idea. <laughs> and um, I would say to the girls, occasionally, girls, let's uh, have a little get together, you know, let's. Uh, <laughs> Let's do this thing like it's supposed to be, you know. Vatican II has happened, and Vatican II is on. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And those of you who don't know what Vatican II is, see me after the meeting, and I can tell you that in two minutes. But, uh, you know, the changes in the church has happened, and we were taking our habits off, and we were going out, and we were having little cocktails occasionally, and it seemed that life was getting a little bit more relaxed for us. And uh, I think the girls, uh, Vatican II, uh, lets us have a little drink occasionally. And uh, so we started finding really good excuses for having our little parties. And uh, they were really innocent, I wanted to know. Oh, really, really innocent. Uh, we would have um, the children were getting the report cards, and I would say to the sisters, well, now, that's over with, thank God. Let's, let's celebrate. You know, I always was liturgical. I always wanted to celebrate. Uh, never said get drunk. I never said let's do anything inappropriate. I said let's celebrate. So we would celebrate. And, um, oh, I have to tell you this, and maybe some of you know, but maybe some of you don't know. It's a very painful experience watching nuns drinking. <laughs> They, um, they're really particular about the kind of a glass they have, for starters. Nothing large like I have here beside me. I wanted large containers, like pitchers, anything. <laughs> and they, you know, they sipped. They sipped very nicely. And they, they held out their little fingers. And they were just very nice and ladylike about the way they drank. And there uh, two ghosts and I was finished. And, and the worst thing of all, or the best thing of all, was that they never really finished. They would leave quite a, a, a quantity of the beverage, and God forbid we'd waste alcohol, right? I mean, what a waste. And, and we have taken a vow of poverty, you know. And, um, <laughs> so, I used to um, go around after these gals who were violating their vow of poverty. <laughs> with the pitcher and pour the leftovers into the pitcher and, uh, you know, no waste and no want and all of that stuff and, and put it away and stash it and hide it so that poor bee, when, when life would get rough, that you could have it on a rainy day. But, see, the thing was that the excuses and the times in between the celebrations got more and more inane. Uh, you know, the Santa Ana wind would blow and we'd have to celebrate. The rain would go and we'd have to celebrate. And uh, their idea and my idea were just different. Uh, they thought celebrate meant kick back, uh, let's uh, go to a movie, let's do something together, let's share for a little bit, let's talk together, let's just be relaxed for an evening. And my idea of celebrate was probably your idea of celebrate. And it's wonderful that I know and you know that we all know what that is. It just meant one thing to us, and uh, they were not thinking in the same direction. And I can remember, uh, it, it exactly was on an Easter Sunday some years back, and, and a straight cat came into our patio and had kittens. And uh, I hated cats, and I still hate cats. And, uh, you know, the, I'm allergic to cats, but my God, this cat has seven kittens. What a wonderful excuse to celebrate. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, when I would travel, which I still do a great deal of, and I did then too, and I traveled over the United States, and I traveled back to England, and I traveled back to Ireland, and I traveled to Australia, and I used to sit at the airport doing something quite differently from most people. I would sit praying that the plane would be late, because in those days, they used to give you complimentary um, cocktails. And so I would say, when the captain would apologize for the the lateness of the plane, and he would be telling us what happened and why, and everything. I'd say, oh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
And I could never wait for them to say, you know, uh, for your convenience and for your comfort, uh, you will be given a complimentary cocktail. And this is on the house. And I think, oh God, this is wonderful. What a nice way to live. And what a, what a way to take the edge of my living. And my drinking progressed in a very innocent sense, uh, in, in that, you know, it was little, little times and little parties and little get-togethers. And then, uh, you know, the priests would get to know that we, uh, liked these little get-togethers. And then we found out that they had little get-togethers sometimes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, often. <laughs> and, uh, they would invite us over. And they'd say, um, well, why don't you come over? And then we'd go over and then they'd come over. And I found out something wonderful. That there were other things besides the beverage in the pitcher and the glasses with the sauce on top. There was gin and tonic and there was vodka and there was bourbon and there was... There was all kinds of other things. It was like finding out a whole new world. And, um, and I was still getting renewed in the church, you know, and I was still, you know, making sure that Vatican II had happened. And I was signing up for all committees, and I was liberating the church, and I was going to get it all set free. And I was signing up everywhere, and I was volunteering, and I was working hard, and I was carrying four jobs and juggling my life. And every time I think of how I worked before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I always want to take a nap. So I won't tell you about it right now, but I just know I worked real hard. And... Um, it progressed, and it progressed, and it got worse, and it got worse, and uh, I was dying inside, and I knew, I just knew that there was something the matter. You know, the word alcoholic was not an unknown quantity to me, because I knew uh, a lot of people in my own family who uh, had this little problem. You know, we do call it the Irish disease, I'm sure there were one or two of you out there, and uh, so I knew that an alcoholic was somebody who really was bad, who was immoral, who was drinking uh, wine under a bridge out of a sack, you know, with a, a bottle in a sack, and it just was unclean, generally. And uh, so I didn't want to become an alcoholic. And I knew that if I could find some way to get this thing just all put together. And I lived, like you lived, with the great obsession that was read this morning, the great obsession of every abnormal drinker, that somehow, someday, that I could control and enjoy my drinking. I lived like this for so long, and what I discovered, to my great dismay, was that I never could do those two things at the same time. I could never control my drinking and enjoy it. Did you ever try to do that? Control your drinking and sip it, and make one or two laughs, and then not be able to do that, and then know that you didn't control it? Uh, and then if I enjoyed my drinking, it meant that I had an unlimited quantity, and therefore I could not control it. So I could never do the two things together. But I lived with the generally greatest obsession that somehow, someday, that I could control and enjoy my drinking. And I continued to die in my convent home. And if I were to meet with each one of you, and there seems like there are thousands of you here, you would all tell me about your death, and uh, your individual inside death. Uh, I want to tell you that my death happened in my community room in a convent, in a very sheltered environment, uh, I had never been drinking on the job. I had never gotten a 502. I had never been institutionalized. I could no longer control and enjoy my drinking, and I was dying. And I didn't know who to tell, and I didn't know who to talk to, and I didn't know what to say, and I just knew it was the end. And I'm standing there in my, in my convent home, confused, upset, crying, afraid, 
And, and knowing that this could not continue, this, this it just couldn't go on. I was either, I planned suicide a number of times, never could follow it through. Uh, I swim every day, and I always, I always figured that I was going to, to die at the bottom of the pool. Now, I'm a good swimmer, so I don't even think I could swim, but I tried to swim. You know that kind of way? And uh, I always had the, you know, the headlines, nervous nun found the bottom of the pool. <laughs> I know none of you have ever figured yourselves in the headlines, but, uh, <laughs> boy, some of the headlines that have gone through my scenario are really interesting. <laughs> and, uh, there I was, and, uh, I was dying. I picked up a little pamphlet that we have, or we subscribe to in our house, and, uh, there was a, at the very back page, in a, a remote corner, there was a, almost, uh, hardly visible, it was a little ad. And the ad said, Sister, are you concerned about your drinking? <laughs> if so, please call the following number, collect. Now, what I was to find out afterwards, that it was a, an ad for a new recovery home for Christians and priests back on the East Coast in Massachusetts. And so I thought, well, boy, out of the 140,000 sisters in the United States, there must be at least one other sister who has a problem besides me. And there must be somebody else who has experienced what I'm going through. And then it said, call collect. And that was wonderful for me, because then they would never find out, you know, that I made the telephone call. And uh, so I called Massachusetts Collect. And uh, I talked to a very kind lady on the telephone, and uh, she asked me if I had some questions, and I said yes. And um, I told her that uh, I was now moving from the job that I was then in to the school principal, and that part of the into the job in the garage where I worked today. And I was going to be counseling and personal director of all the nuns and all the priests in the diocese. And I was very concerned about them because a lot of them were drinking. And I didn't know how to tell her uh, that I was dying myself. I couldn't say the word. And I said, um, you know, I don't know what to do. And I had no experience with stuff like this. And please help me. Uh, I talked to her like from one administrator to another type, you know, she would know what I was talking about. The unfortunate part for me as the conversation went on was that she didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> and uh, she went along with my um, life and uh, she uh, told me that I could get literature for these people and that there were such things as recovery homes and there was a program called Alcoholics Anonymous and she would send me to come up the phone and find her. And she said a very extraordinary, uh, she asked me a very extraordinary question. And she said, Sister, would you like to tell me about your own drinking? <laughs> well, you know, as I stand in front of you, and again, there are thousands of you, I have no idea on this, why there's the world, how this lady back in Massachusetts could ever ask me that question. Um, I was miles away from her, I didn't need identified. Her, to her, you know, that I, generally what I was doing, I didn't even tell where I lived, but she didn't know my name, and she asked me about my own drinking. And you and I will know for sure that that was a very curious, nosy question to ask of a person who didn't want to stop drinking, right? And uh, I told her, well, every once in a while, I have a little glass of wine. <laughs> and... Um, I have to tell you that I didn't care much for wine. Uh, if I could get something bigger and better, wine was not the, the beverage of my choice. But when you're stripping the bottom, you'll even have wine, right? 
And uh, <laughs> I can hear a few whiners over there. <laughs> so um, she paused, and, and then she said um, something that I thought was even a little stranger. She said, I can hear pain in your voice. I always feel that um, the God, as I understand God today, spoke to me through this woman. And uh, she brought me to the point when she said the sentence, I can hear pain in your voice. She brought me to my moment of truth. And I was standing with the telephone in my hand, about to hang up and say no more, and never speak to her, and never continue the conversation. And instead of that, I had the grace of that moment uh, to come to touch with what was happening, to come into touch with my dying and my death, and to tell her that indeed I was in great pain. And I didn't know who to tell, and who to go to for help, and I did not know what to do. And she told me I could maybe think of a recovery hospital, I could maybe go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thought, oh no, I couldn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm too important, and they find out about me. <laughs> and uh, I would probably meet a kid I taught, or a mom or dad of a kid I taught, and my God, then my image would certainly be blown. And uh, I didn't know really how I was going to do this, but I listened to what she had to say. And um, I can always remember knowing that this was the end. It was like she had pronounced the death sentence, and uh, I didn't know where to go from there. The following morning, however, I called Alcoholics Anonymous in a town called Whittier in California. It's, uh, I don't know if any of you here come from Whittier, and if you do, oh, praise God, wonderful. If you have never uh, been to Whittier to Serenity Hall, I question your sobriety. <laughs> because Serenity Hall in uh, Uptown Whittier was my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I want to tell you about that. Uh, I was uh, still the principal of the school moving into this new job, and I can remember I had a little free spot on a Wednesday morning, uh, and the meeting was at 10 o'clock, and I, at that time we were wearing a kind of a modified religious garb, and I can remember running down from the convent and taking off that and putting on regular clothes and uh, making up my face and putting on lots and lots of eye makeup. Now, I, to this day, I will never know why I did any of this, <laughs> but I just what I did. I guess I just wanted to embarrass the members in Serenity Hall. <laughs> and uh, I went down there at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning, and um, it was an amazing experience for me. And um, most of the gentlemen, and there were mostly gentlemen there, uh, they, were, they had court cards, it seemed. And the man who was meeting the meeting, I wonder if he's here today, he said, um, I will sign the court cards after the meeting. And I thought that that meant I had to go out and get a court card so that they wouldn't stay. <laughs> and uh, I was very naive and I was very frightened and I didn't know what to do. And uh, this man who was leading the meeting, uh, he was telling us his story and he was sharing with us his experience, his strength and his hope. And uh, I was fascinated by this young fellow. He was really fascinating. And I discovered that he was using words that I used to punish the eighth graders for writing on the bathroom wall. Uh, he was, um, on a regular basis, he was using the A word, uh, which you probably don't know, but it begins with chef. And uh, 
then he would uh, move on and graduate into bigger and better things, and we would talk about the subword. <laughs> it was um, very fascinating to me. I made a very detailed study of the English language at one time in my life. <laughs> and um, this man had the ability to use these words in sentences. <laughs> as prepositions, adjectives, pronouns, verbs, and conjunctions. And I can remember saying to myself, and this is going to be my spiritual leader for the rest of my life. <laughs> I remember I did start off to be a saint, you know. I remember it. I remember and um, I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know where to go. And I, I heard one thing he said at the very end, and he, it said, he said, keep coming back. And I just knew I'd never end this rainy all again. <laughs> and um, I got in my car to drive home, and it was raining, and it was in December, and it was miserable, and I was afraid, and I didn't want to be an alcoholic, and it was bad news. And I was crying, and I looked, uh, I stopped at the stoplights, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and I... I was just, the tears were rolling down my face and all this eye growth that I put on was rolling down along with it. And I was so upset and so miserable that I said the shiv word and the sub word all the way home. <laughs> and I want you to tell you this because I'm far away from home and just don't ever tell this to anybody. <laughs> Sometimes I'm too <laughs> My sponsor, whose name is Deke, and some of you know Deke, uh, Deke has been on the Portland Alpha House Diamond forever. And uh, he keeps telling me that I've got to clean it up one of these days, and I, I'm working at it. And if the others hear me saying, you know, the shareboard occasion, they say, we're going to tell Zeke on you. And so uh, it's getting better. Uh, anyway, what I want to let you know is that uh, thank God for the first meeting in Serenity Hall and Whittier, because it brought me to some kind of truth. And in spite of all the confusion, I felt a oneness and a comfort that, that I couldn't understand. I just was not willing to do the things that I continually heard being asked of me at the meetings. Now, if you're new, and a number of you didn't say that today, you hear strange things in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, they'll tell you, don't drink. My God, don't drink. You know, people like us, and they're telling us not to drink. Now, in the year I got sober, I got sober on December the 2nd. And uh, they would say, don't drink no matter what. That was a great thing. I hear they say the state of women's meetings, the fifth study meetings, the figures meetings. And uh, they say, don't drink. And I thought, my goodness, these people have got to be crazy. The only legal time in my life that I could drink without having to sneak it or, or pretend it was a party was Christmas. And they were telling me on the 2nd of December, don't drink a day at a time. And I just knew by Christmas I was going to have to celebrate the birth of Christ, you know? <laughs> and um, I didn't really want not to drink. I, I, I had no intention of giving up alcohol. That was not in my script, really. 
I just wanted to do it nicely. I wanted to do it like a lady, and I wanted to feel comfortable inside. And then they said, go to meetings. And uh, I just knew that if I heard their fifth chapter read one more time, I was going to throw up, you know? <laughs> How dumb did they think I was? You know, rarely have we seen a person fail. Oh, my Lord. It seemed like uh, ad infinitum, you know, just to get on sales all the time. And I thought, oh, they don't know what they have in their hands here. You know, I'm, li- I'm really rather smart. And I, and I couldn't get it. And then they would say, get a sponsor. And, um, well, I didn't, I, I didn't need a sponsor. I, I, I have a degree in theology. You know <laughs> God forgive me, you know, I have a degree in theology and in spirituality. I don't know how it's occurred even to say those words to you. But <laughs> I do, and they didn't keep me sober. And nothing kept me sober. And I had a relationship with a higher power. I did have a relationship with God, as I understood him then. And what I discovered was that me and God could never get it together by ourselves. We just couldn't. Uh, I prayed and I fasted and I asked and I, uh, I I asked for the obsession to be removed from me. And uh, one great uh, recollection I have is that I, I made a 30-day retreat. I went to the north of California specifically with the intention of asking God to please, please, God, remove the obsession to drink from me. I will pray and I will fast and then I will wake up on the 30th day and my obsession will be gone. And... Uh, I went to the north of California and I prayed and I fasted for 30 days practically just so that God would do this for me. And one day in that whole 30 day period we had a break day and uh, that day the other people who were there asked me was there anything special I would like to do on my break day which meant we could go out and visit and do whatever we wanted to do. And I said yes I would like to visit the Napa Valley. that you'd want me to do that, right? <laughs> and we visited the wineries and we came home feeling no pain. And uh, that's the biggest memory I have of my 30-day retreat. You know, that I just was, I was still wanting to drink a lot more after it happened. And oh, it was hard. And, and I just, I prayed so hard. And they, they told me to get a sponsor. And uh, I can remember interviewing some ladies and I, I would, um, you know, I really did interview. Very, I'm a good interviewer. And uh, I interviewed and I, I hired temporarily. And then when I didn't care for what I was been told, I, I fired. You know, I just uh, I told them I no longer needed their services and it was going to be okay. And I was going to do this thing by myself. Uh, and then they said, read the big book. Well, you know, uh, I said, uh, well, you know, just the book. You know, I read, avidly read. And uh, I didn't care very much for the way the big book was written then. And so I took the big book down to Huntington Beach one morning on a Sunday, and I sat up in December where the lifeguard sits, you know, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. No lifeguards in December. So I sat up there and uh, I corrected it so that uh, you could have a copy of the new edition a la Sister D. <laughs> So um, I, I didn't like what it said in 62 and 63. I didn't care what they said, you know, so our problems we think are basically of our own making. I didn't like that. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, I, I, be am a complete example of self one life. <laughs> oh, dear. It was hard. <laughs> and uh, so the big book then, I didn't get along too well. And, and then it said, um, 
you know, work the steps. And I just knew that there was really no need for me to work the steps. I figured that I had done all, there was all the spirituality that I was supposed to know about, which I did in my head, uh, was in my head and I didn't need any further study. So I, I just kept the first seven or eight months in my sobriety, or dryness, I would prefer to call it today, in total misery. Uh, I was on a constant dry drunk, my emotions were high and low and mostly low and I was crying most of the time. And I would go down to Serenity Hall in Whittier and they used to say one to the other, here comes the crying nun. <laughs> and um, the crying nun would get up on the podium and tell them how terrible the nuns were to her and how the Catholic Church was not shaping up and it was real bad. Everything was just not comfortable. And this older member of Alcoholics Anonymous who has since passed away took me aside one day and he said, B, you seem like you're really not happy in the program. And I said, right. I said, I don't want it. I don't like it. I might as well be drinking. The only thing I didn't do was I didn't drink. And the only reason, quite frankly, was I just knew that it smelled of me. And I knew that the people in Alcoholics Anonymous could read my soul. They have a look, for those of you who are new. They have a look, and they will look into your very soul, and they will pierce you through and through. And somehow I knew that I couldn't get away with anything with the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't drink, not because I didn't want to, but because I was afraid to. And God forbid, and far be it from my pride, to let you think that I couldn't do it. And uh, that was my motivation in those seven or eight months. And this man said to me, you're miserable, and I said yes. And he said to me, and he looked at me with those piercing eyes, which I will never forget, and he said, um, it's not for me to tell this to you. God help me, you know. He said, did you ever think of asking God to give you the willingness to make some changes inside of yourself? Well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, and all the lectures I'd heard and all the studies I'd done and all the knowledge that I had up here, I'd never heard anybody say to me to pray for the willingness. I had never heard it. Now, that is not to say that it was never said, but I had never heard it. And this man suggested this to me, and I was dying, and I was miserable. And uh, so he said, um, perhaps if you go home to your convent and uh, kneel down and ask God to give you the willingness. And I can tell you right now that uh, I was so upset and so miserable that I did that. I'd love to let you know that God appeared to me and that God said, you know, okay, B, here you go. Here's a big package of willingness. Now, this is going to get you through. And you're different and you're special. And you've done a lot of good things for me. And I'm going to give you a special brand of willingness. Folks, it didn't happen that way. All I know today is that when I first asked God to give me the willingness, the things got a little bit better and better and better. And I got a little bit more willing, just tiny, tiny, wee bits, willing to do some of the things that had been suggested to me. Like I became willing to go to meetings more regularly, to share what really was going on instead of sharing what I thought people wanted to hear. I got a little bit more willing to read the book. I did become willing to get a sponsor. And I started to become involved with the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which has given me my life today. And I want you also to know, 
to the degree that I still create this willingness to get over any obstacle that I have in my life, anything whatsoever, any barrier that there is to my comfort, if I remember, oh, and I remember so uh, reluctantly, I have to get you to remind me constantly by going to my meetings. If I can remember to do that, I'm in very good shape. And uh, when I pray for the willingness, it all gets to be better for me. Now, that's a real simple thing to be told, but that's what happened. And so I became willing, uh, little by little, to become involved with the 12 steps. And what they told me was that, uh, first of all, I was totally and completely powerless. When, I, when you come from the northern part of Ireland, you're not powerless, remember that. You're just powerful, and you surrender rather uh, reluctantly to anything. And uh, certainly, you don't want to admit that your life is unmanageable. And so when I finally got to be able to say, Oh, I'm powerless, and it feels good to be powerless. Uh, I'm powerless over alcohol. I'm powerless over prescription drugs. I'm powerless over people, places, things, and events, even the weather, and even the Pope. How about that? You know, just imagine being, uh, being comfortable and being powerless. It was all against what I ever had been taught, totally against what I've ever been taught. And um, what a nice relief today. Uh, I was told on the program that I had to get rid of my old ideas, and I was also told that it included my good old ideas and power and holding on and, and being strong was one of my good old ideas and I had to get rid of that old idea. Christmas, I'm really comfortable. Um, the second step talks about sanity. I know none of you are the same. I know that. We just all get crazy every once in a while, right? <laughs> we, uh, our heads can take off, you know, and, and we get paranoid, and uh, these are the things over which I drank. I, I drank over little things that didn't make any difference to anybody else. I would tra drink over the traffic on the freeway, uh, somebody leaving their, their cups in the sink, you know, little tiny things. Um, you know, they just don't do it the way I think they ought to. And I would get into people's inventory, and uh, my, my crazies would take off every once in a while. And uh, I've come to believe that God can restore me to some kind of sanity or some reasoning today. Uh, in the third step, oh, the third step was awfully hard for me. I don't have any difficulty with the third step, but I had a real difficult job. When I got professed in the religious orders in which I belonged, they gave me a ring which I wear on my finger. And it says, on the back of it, it says, my God and my all. And I felt that I had turned my will and my life over to the care of God there. That's like eons away. And uh, so I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous that I never did that, really. Uh, my idea of God was, you know, God was God, and I was Mrs. God. And, uh, <laughs> Because I was Mrs. Bada, I was in the upper hand of the relationship, right? We <laughs> <laughs> better be careful here not to get into outside issues. <laughs> That's what I was talking to the Pope about. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Take them to him. <laughs> you know, 
I, I do figures, but if I snapped my fingers and if I wrote lists and if I did lists and if I spoke lists, God was supposed to do what I meant him to do. And this magic thing that happened in Alcoholics Anonymous was that I read. One day I read and I absorbed just a teeny little bit, page 62, where it says, this is the how and the why of it. <laughs> I love the way it like that. We had to quit playing God. It didn't work. It just doesn't work for us. And here, after in this drama of life, God was going to be our, our director. And, and she had, had to suddenly realized that she had to get a new director who was greater and more powerful and much more dependable than she was. And that was a whole new ballgame for me. I was the self-sufficient person who really was going to get it all together and help me get it all together and work it out and, and organize it and, and, you know, arrange it just exactly as I, as I thought it should be arranged. And uh, I was told in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in the big book and I was told by people like you and even by some of you, I was told that this was the, the keystone, this, this concept that if I could let God take over, that it was going to be the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which I was going to pass to freedom. And that's all I ever wanted was this inside freedom. The promise that I was given was that when I would sincerely take this position, that all kinds of remarkable things would happen. Remarkable things would happen. The little bee who always considered herself to be the little red-headed one with the freckles and the holly hobby look, you know, not sitting in just not being part of, and remarkable things were going to happen to little B. And if she would turn her will and her life over to God's care. What I found out today was that as I do this, as I feel the new power flowing in, and as I enjoy peace of mind, and as I discover that I can face life successfully, and I become conscious on a daily basis that, that God is in charge, and that I now have a God who is my Father. When I understand this, which I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous, this blessed, wonderful, grace-filled program, when I find this out, then my fear disappears, and I continue, and I continue, and I continue to experience a rebirth and a resurrection and an Easter. I continue this every day of my life that I can turn my day and my life over to God's care. Uh, I didn't want to take step four either. And uh, I have mentioned that maybe there's two of you. I can just put this there too. In this whole world, I in that audience that have not done their first step and are, you know, they want to. And what they told me was that not, not wanting to have nothing to do with it. In fact, what I promised to my homeboy, which is in one of our hospitals at 6.30 a.m., I said, you know, I'm going to see the Pope next week and I'll bring out any fourth step that you want me to take over the show to him. <laughs> And uh, one of my friends, Steve, he says, uh, I think if he read my first step, he'd have to make a new commandment. <laughs> but, um, you know, I wanted to do my first step perfectly, so I bought about five notebooks in 1010. And uh, I wanted to impress my sponsor with the way I was able to write the English language. And what I discovered was that my sponsor didn't care. All my sponsor cared about was that I could get rid of the garbage. I still had to do another process which was much more in-depth and much more honest than the first one. It was necessary for me to do at least a superficial first process so that I could get rid of some of the guilt and some of the fear and some of the dreadful things that I thought were part of my existence. 
and encourage you to do it. Just go ahead, give yourself a couple of hours and do it. And uh, get it off your chest, because in taking step five, I found for me it was a wonderful freedom. Uh, I felt, uh, you know, that, that uh, what it talks about after step seven and on, it talks about the ability to be able to look the world in the eye. I never felt I could look the world in the eye. I never felt I was worthy. I never felt I was worthwhile. I never felt I could do that. Uh, just six and seven where I was to become willing to have gotten my defects of character. Remember I was the saints, you know, and so saints don't have defects of character. And as I got into my inventory, I, I discovered a couple. <laughs> uh, in fact, um, all the baby sins. And uh, anything, anything else that there was, anything that we read up in the private press, I touched on some of them. Some of them some of them, uh, you know, like, uh, I, I just don't care for them. Uh, I didn't like my defects of character. And when I became willing, um, I moved into uh, step seven to ask God to, to please with me remove them. Now, what I want you to know is that uh, I've had a number of things in my life that were really good experiences with God. And um, I had a, a religious or a spiritual experience when I took step seven that was different and more profound than anything else that I've ever experienced in my entire life. And uh, what I had been doing was I decided to do step seven. And step seven, as you know, is on page 76 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was kneeling down and I was uh, reading the words and I was trying to mean it. And I said, my creator, I am now willing that you should have all of the good and bad. At that moment, in my innermost being, I had a sense of God that I had never, ever, ever, ever experienced before. And it was a God who was a father, who was large, who was um, absolutely all-embracing and all-powerful. And this God, as I understood him in my innermost being, uh, was a father God. And it was like a father God that I, I just needed and had been looking for and searching for all the years of my life. And this God was smiling and he had a wonderful sense of humor. And he was listening to me really intently. And he couldn't believe his ears when he heard me saying, uh, I am now willing, God, that you should have all of me getting back. He was just real surprised. And he told me, and he said, Oh, Jeannie. He said, Really? <laughs> I mean, sure. Oh, gosh. I'm glad. I've been waiting for you, babe. I really have been waiting for you. And I've been waiting for you because I love you just as you are. I love you with your freckles and your red hair. And I love you with your defects of character. And I love you whether you're drunk or sober. And I love you whether you're perfect or imperfect. I just love you as you are. Just be, you know, I love you. And um, I understood this for the first time in my entire life, that God loved me just as I was. Now this may not sound profound to you, but what I have to tell you is that I spent years and years and years teaching people, and uh, really teaching people, that God loved them no matter what. And people would come back to me years afterwards and say to me, you know, I will never forget how you told me about God's unconditional love. And I would say to myself, how come, 
how come he didn't give me any? How come I got left out? How come I'm still with the circles and the red hair? And, and how come I'm different and I'm isolated and I'm lonely and I'm afraid? And at that moment, I just knew that it was all okay, that it was this person that God wanted me to be, and that I had to continue just being this person. And that what I want to tell you is that I have this strange suspicion that I look at you this morning in this wonderful, colorful array, that God loves you just as you are, and whether you're good or bad, and that he removes all our defects of character that are not useful. And I believe that some of my defects of character are useful, because when I show them, it seems to help other people. And I don't know why that works. <laughs> And uh, I think that this is how God wants us to be. And I know that uh, when you share your defects of character with me, it's okay for me to be jealous and lonely and afraid and angry. It's okay. And uh, I, I'm given permission. And the identity that we have with one another, we have to be one another. And I know, I know that my God loves me today. And I learned that through this blessed program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I moved into step eight and step nine, where I made my list of my people that I had harmed and hurt, and I made my amends to the best of my ability. And again, as I mentioned, it just gave me the great freedom of being able to look the world in the eye. Uh, you know, just, I have nothing to hide anymore. I just don't have anything to hide. It's all okay. Uh, in steps 10, 11, and 12, our body uses our maintenance steps, and uh, I do, I do them uh, sometimes well and sometimes not too well. Sometimes perfectly and sometimes imperfectly, mostly imperfectly. And what I found out from step 10 is my maintenance step, and um, I discovered that if I'm ever uncomfortable today, it can only be one of four things that could ever be wrong with me. And that could be selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. That's what the big book tells me, that um, I, nothing else can ever be wrong with me. Now, I always want to call it something else. Uh, I never want to call it what it really is. But when I get right down to it and I get honest, it's always, it's put down to one of those things. You know, ego moves in where I edge God out, and, and I'm just honest, and I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm really fine. <laughs> so I uh, answered the lady in Ralph's market, and she asked you, how are you today? And you say, fine. You have an hour and a half to really hear what I'm talking about. <laughs> you and I uh, don't find it appropriate out there to tell them. And the bishop asks me, how are you doing today? I say, well, just a quick moment. Let me tell you how I really am. Uh, however, I do know that the extent that I can be honest to give about my feelings. Uh, I, I'm comfortable. And if I get into a gentleman, which my friend Paul talks it, he calls it, uh, rehearsal for retaliation. <laughs> I see this on a regular basis. You know, I want to even, Paul, do you remember telling me that one? Rehearsal for retaliation. Well, I, I, I want to practice. I practice getting them. You know, I'm going to get them. And they're going to get it. And I'm going to win. You know, I'm going to get it. I'm going to win. And uh, they don't know any better. And on this time, I am right. This time, I am right. Uh, I usually can find a wonderful justification for my, for my behavior in my head. And as Paul talks about, you know, my committee moves into my head on a regular basis too, and it has a conference, 
30 in the morning before I wake up, and they're waiting for me. They are waiting for me to get up, and they'll say, dude, come on, bring it up. We've been waiting. Get up now. Let's go. If I follow what it says in the book, and it says we ask God at once, you know, once removed this, and we talk things over immediately with other people, we tell each other what's going on, and we make the names quickly, and we resolutely set out to help other people, that's sufficient, seems to me, uh, that I can become comfortable if I just follow those simple basic steps in the big book. Um, what a wonderful way for us to live. I talk, I still teach. Prayer and meditation. God help us. I learned. <laughs> I learned uh, prayer and meditation. I experienced prayer and meditation through you. I was taught prayer and meditation by people like you. I was uh, at a meeting one morning, at the early morning meeting at Laguna Beach some years ago, and uh, I see my time number as usual. I often did that, and still do it occasionally. And uh, this young girl came up to me after the meeting. Her name was Debbie. I've never seen her since. And she said to me, she said, you know, it seems to me that you might be in between surrenders. I thought that was a wonderful, profound statement. And then she told me that she, her lifestyle had been a little different from mine. That she, before she got sober, she'd been a prostitute. And uh, I, I thought it was a fantastic experience for me. I thought, where in this world could I go where God would appear to me to somebody like this? And God has appeared to me to people like you. God has finally spoken to me through you. And uh, I know that uh, I have it now. I know that this is what I've been looking for all the days of my life. This is what it has been. This is how I was taught care and education through you. Uh, when I do my big hierarchical first steps, you know, now, and uh, they ask my opinion about things. Did you believe that? And uh, I tell them very wise things. And they'll get all cut up and they'll get confused and they'll get excited. And I say, you know what I think? I think that maybe we could just take this whole project one day at a time. <laughs> and they think I'm willing. <laughs> Oh, God bless you for all you've done for me. God bless you for all you've given me. All of, all of the way that I can live today in a freedom, growth, and happiness is due to people like you. I never experienced it. Never, ever, ever. I could have missed it. I almost missed this miracle. I almost missed it. I don't know how a step 12 works exactly, but I just know that you and I are called to stay sober and to carry this message. Uh, God has strange messengers, <laughs> really interesting messengers, and uh, sometimes I'll be at a speaker's meeting and I'll say to the person beside me, isn't that a terrible speaker? And the, the, the person beside me will say, oh, I think she's wonderful, and I think she's wonderful, she, because God speaks to us all differently, and God uses us in all forms on this program, entering the ashtrays, making the coffee, setting up the chairs, working on a roundup, uh, sharing us, doing strength and hope, sponsoring. You know, we get all kinds of different ways to carry this message to other alcoholics. And to the extent that I make this my primary purpose today, I'm, I'm always been involved in feeling growth and happiness. Uh, as I said earlier this morning, 
they are having people out there. And um, I really believe, and I, I strongly know at this moment, that uh, if the God that I understand today is anywhere, the God that I understand is here today. And so, from this God and with this God that I understand, I want to say to you, happy Easter, happy resurrection, and a happy new life. Thank you.